I'm Ted Burnham. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, February 12th, 2012. Coming up, we'll learn from a Colorado scientist about a major new report on climate change and its current and expected future impacts on Colorado and the rest of the country. And we'll hear an interview with a multimedia artist, DJ Spooky, who combines scientific data, live performers, and hip-hop beats to remix the musical landscape of Antarctica. We begin with a look at some of the recent and heartfelt news and science, a little tribute to Valentine's Day on Thursday. A group of scientists have discovered a protein that could provide a cure for a broken heart, but not the kind you're hoping to avoid this Valentine's Day. They think the protein, called parvalbumin, might be able to treat diastolic heart failure. That's a chronic condition that often affects the elderly. It appears when the heart muscle, which contracts to pump blood through the body, doesn't fully relax between squeezes, and that means the body doesn't get as much fresh, oxygenated blood as it needs. The heart's pumping action is controlled by calcium molecules, which build up in the heart muscle until it gets the message, contract. Normally, calcium dissipates quickly, and the muscle gets a moment to rest. But in diastolic patients, calcium builds up faster than it dissipates, so the heart never fully relaxes. The parvalbumin protein intervenes by soaking up calcium like a sponge on its way to the heart muscle. It's only a temporary stopping point, but it delays the calcium long enough for the heart to get back to its normal beat. Parvalbumin certainly looks promising. In other animals, it lets muscles contract and relax incredibly quickly. But the researchers will need to find the right way to deliver it as a drug before they can begin human clinical trials. The research was conducted by scientists at the Lillehei Heart Institute at the University of Minnesota. It appears in the current issue of Nature Medicine. We often hear the cliches, it was love at first sight, and opposites attract. But what's really at work in selecting a romantic or sexual partner? New research offers insights into why and when Cupid's arrow strikes. Elizabeth McClintock, a sociologist at the University of Notre Dame, suggests her studies show how physical attractiveness and age affect mate selection, and how gender and income affect relationships. McClintock examines the effects of physical attractiveness on young adults' sexual and romantic outcomes, including the number of partners, relationship status, and timing of sexual intercourse. According to the study, just as people exchange their good looks for status and wealth, they also trade their attractiveness for control over the degree of commitment and progression of sexual sexual activity. Here's one of McClintock's findings. For women, the better looking they are, the fewer sexual partners they have. But for men, the number of sexual partners increases with increasing physical attractiveness. Also for women, the number of reported sexual partners is tied to weight. Thinner women report fewer partners. Thinness is a dimension of attractiveness for women, apparently. It sounds like there was some subjective, or at least culturally specific, research going on here. At any rate, the study was published in the journal Biodemography and Social Biology. And CU Boulder researchers have demonstrated that even plants can feel love for others, though the CU scientists don't call it romantic love. Instead, they report that plants demonstrate a form of altruism, sort of like when a couple decides to adopt an orphaned niece or nephew. In the case of plants, CU researcher Pamela Diggle was looking at corn. That's because each fertilized seed, the part we call a corn kernel, actually contains two siblings— 
an embryo, and a corresponding bit of tissue known as endosperm that feeds the embryo while the seed grows. Usually the mother and father plants of the endosperm and the embryo are exactly the same, but every now and then, one father, in the form of pollen, fertilizes the embryo, and another father's pollen fertilizes the endosperm. To find these rare step-siblings within a single kernel, co-author Chi-Chi Wu harvested 100 ears of corn and checked out every single kernel. It turns out that when the embryo and endosperm have the same father, a corn kernel ends up heavier than when the two parts are not related. Or put another way, when the endosperm is a full-blooded twin to the embryo, it works harder to give its sibling more food, meaning it's more altruistic. The research team points out that one of the most fundamental laws of nature is that, in terms of survival of your own genetics, if you decide to be an altruist, shower your love and resources on your closest relatives. This research was published last week in the Proceedings of the National Academies of Science. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Susan Moran. You've probably heard of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. It's the huge body of scientists who've compiled influential reports on global climate change. But you may not have heard of a similar body of science focused on the United States. It's just recently been released in draft form, and it's called the National Climate Assessment. It was designed to communicate climate change science and impacts in the U.S., the report takes a sweeping look at key findings about climate change, including observed changes and future trends. And it comes at a time when major storms and wildfires are increasing in so many areas. And last year, the continental U.S. experienced its hottest year ever recorded. Dr. Dennis Ojima is one of the participating authors of the report, and he joins us on the phone from his office at Colorado State University. He's a professor in the Ecosystem Science and Sustainability Department and senior research scientist at the Natural Resource Ecology Laboratory. Dr. Ujima co-wrote the chapter on the Great Plains, but he's also deeply involved in the broader report and its science and policy implications. So, uh, Dr. Ujima, welcome to the show. Dr. Ujima, you're there. Welcome to the show. Yes, I'm here. Oh, great. So um, I'm curious, first, how you got involved in what sounds like a hugely important and even uh, probably more hugely time-consuming endeavor. Well, for the past almost 30 years, I've been involved in climate change research, associates impacts on agricultural and rangeland systems um, in and around Colorado. And, in fact, there was a prior national assessment that came out um, in 2000, and I was um, a lead author for that, especially for the Central Great Plains. And so really looked at um, agriculture, water use, um, biodiversity issues um, in the region. And so with that involvement, um, continued with my research and then um, involvement with this most recent report. And in this case, um, what, there were about 60 scientists or so, right? Um, probably closer to... Several, well, 200 or more, Um, because we have not only the the lead authors that you see, but researchers and um, private sector individuals involved with um, looking at the impacts of climate change and concerns across multiple sectors, and federal agency um, 
researchers involved with this throughout the nation. So it looks like kind of a parallel report to the IPCC, not in a formal sense, but I'm curious what precipitated this report. Well, we're on the hook by congressional legislation to actually have a report every four years. And this effort um, that will be coming out in 2014 um, officially um, is really the, the second comprehensive report of the kind. Is that we, we completed one in 2000, and then um, two other reports have come out, um, but less comprehensive in, in way of involving the scope of uh, researchers and businesses and um, sort of decision makers in the process of developing the report and looking at various sectors, um, different regions more specifically. And so this was really a, um, a monumental effort um, of the community to really look at the impacts and some of the consequences um, of climate change in our uh, nation's, inter nation's interest. So on a big scale, what's new here? I know there's so many findings, but what really stands out? You've been involved in this, as you said, since 2000. Well, I mean, what really has emerged is that you know, our observations of, of climate change impacts on our natural resources and in our sort of um, infrastructure has really emerging. And though, you know, the recent weather patterns isn't definitive that climate change is happening, but the combination of changes in seasonality of temperatures, the change in rainfall patterns and snow patterns in the mountains, um, those impacts then on the hydrology, river flows um, into um, our major um, streams and uh, river basins, the accumulated evidence is really showing the impacts of climate change across the nation, and in particular, the Great Plains, which is very sensitive uh, to these type of climate and weather pattern changes. And I know the Great Plains includes sort of east of the divide, right, and, and many other states. Yes, it extends essentially from um, as far north as Minnesota, um, North Dakota, Montana, all the way down to Texas and, and um, Oklahoma, and includes Colorado and um, many of the rangeland and, and dryland agricultural states in between. So on that front close to home, give us a snapshot of some of the key findings and, and messages there. What stands out as either really alarming or reaffirming? Well, what's, what we're seeing is a drying out, especially in the uh, spring precipitation um, in the Plains region of Colorado, and that's sort of eastern Colorado and out in the Kansas. And so we're sort of in this um, intensification or more high-frequency um, dry periods that really affect our uh, wheat and um, corn production uh, within the area. Also, ha also has an influence on our rangeland conditions and the cattle um, production as well because we're not having as uh, much forage availability uh, for our animals. And one of the things that uh, we saw in the last year in the drought, and this doesn't affect Colorado specifically, but we saw that uh, from many of the Texas um, cattle ranchers had to ship their um, cattle to finish up up north, up in our region and into um, Kansas and Nebraska because they had better uh, forage avail availability. Because they just weren't able to grow enough of the, the forage grasses, for, right? For, for themselves. So we're seeing this sort of 
in regional interconnections in our agricultural systems um, due to um, climate impacts. And so, you know, showing, we're fortunate enough that we are able to um, accommodate some of those changes, but this continues, and it, it, especially in the central Great Plains, south into Texas, if, if this drought continues or this drying out um, continues, then we'll have to sort of look at different adaptation strategies. And this is contrast to what we saw in the Great Plains up in the north and up in the area of North Dakota and east Montana, uh, where we're seeing um, higher precipitation um, during the same time period. So the Great Plains, because mm. of its large region, has the sort of geographic differences, and um, some of those um, are showing areas that are becoming uh, wetter and other areas like ours, which are drying out. And if they're becoming wetter, I mean, depends on what stake you hold in it, right? If you're growing wheat, that could be a good thing. If, if if it doesn't get so wet that you can't plant or get so wet that you can't get, you know, access to your fields at critical times when the uh, roads are flooded out. So is the main purpose or goal of the assessment to shed more light on the science that's known and or to suggest some, you know, recommendations for Congress and for states? Well, it's it's really to, it, the purpose of this particular assessment was to sort of look more closely across the United States. Um, and so we had um, 10 regions, approximately 10 regions, including, you know, sort of Hawaii, Pacific Islands, uh, Alaska, um, and six regions in the United States looking at um, these, what's happening in the climate system, uh, what are the impacts um, to these regions and to various sectors, and really try and inform not only um, the folks in Washington, D.C., but also just our local constituents and, and stakeholders about some of the things that are emerging in way of impacts and consequences of climate change that affect their livelihoods, and really trying to get at what what sort of efforts and adaptation and mitigation um, that people are doing locally and, and within our states, and also what um, lessons can be learned and, and transmitted across the nation to help other communities who are trying to look for ways of um, adapting to climate change or to reduce their emissions. And I want to get down to, uh, I know you're not in the realm of policy or making a, you know prescriptive suggestions, but um, I've got to take the opportunity in the 30 seconds or so we have. So uh, President Obama speaks tonight the State of the Union. He's expected to talk a little more about climate in the more specific you know, science terms. But also, um, given the cap-and-trade program that was proposed way back in 2008, 2009, was killed, do you think, I mean, it's going to take something, you know, nothing short of that to uh, make some improvements? Well, you know, what I hope he mentions is sort of the connection between our energy use and the portfolio of energy that we um, produce and use and look at the efficiencies that we can gain in our energy use and how that's related to our emissions and our climate. The issue of carbon pricing would be a really innovative way and a useful way that other countries have used to really start looking at the cost effectiveness of how do we pay for innovation in energy and reductions in our emissions in a way that really does let the market um, provide a mechanism 
uh, for reducing our emissions and looking at new innovations in energy por- of our energy portfolio. Well, thank you. I know um, there's a lot. We'll see what uh, comes out of tonight. We've got to cut this off, but thank you so much for coming on the show. That was okay. our guest, CSU Professor Dennis Ojima, one of the participating authors of the newly released National Climate Assessment. To download chapters or for the full report, just go to globalchange.gov. Well, as scientists try to get the word out about research like the National Climate Assessment, maybe they should talk to our next guest. Paul D. Miller, also known as DJ Spooky, is a multimedia artist whose work includes books, graphic design, music, even mobile apps. And he's the current artist-in-residence at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, where he's creating installations that remix the museum's collections. Miller traveled to Antarctica in 2007, and much of his work since has incorporated themes of climate change and the icy Antarctic landscape. He was in Boulder last week to talk about and perform some of his work as part of CU's Atlas Speaker Series. Miller spoke with me by phone yesterday from his New York apartment. I began by asking him why he was interested in remixing Antarctica. When I started thinking about nature, um, one of the things that really struck me was how um, climate change is about disrupted patterns. Um, ocean currents, air currents, temperature differentials, megastorms, and Antarctica was kind of a mirror of some of the uh, more interesting processes that were going on. But at the same time, it's kind of a document. If you dig down in the ice, that's what they call ice core sampling. Scientists take small fragments of the ice and are able to determine what was in the air. They use it as a kind of a document that can tell you millions of years of climate change. So I wanted to look at Antarctica as a kind of record collection or a kind of archive. So I, I carried a studio and a backpack and went to several of the main ice fields. And that's, uh, that's where it all started. And so how do you actually remix that landscape? What does that mean in practical terms? When you start thinking about um, science and data, um, if you're a scientist or artist, you need to be able to compare and contrast information to make better material. So um, when I went to Antarctica, um, I wanted to compare and contrast how I had grown up in an urban context and be able to take myself out of that and see what would happen to my creative process. So hip-hop, techno, dubstep, all these kinds of music that come from the urban landscape, I get that, but as an artist, I wanted to challenge myself and see what would happen. Um, the city for me was already a data set, and I wanted to go further. So it was it's a conceptual project, unapologetically smart about science and art. Um, I worked with a scientist uh, named Ross Virginia, who's head of Dartmouth Cold Regions Research Labs, and he gave me access to some of the climate change data um, from the last several expeditions of his trips from Dartmouth to Antarctica. Um, And so the song that you're hearing, all the electronics underneath it are generated using some of that as well. So you have the live instrumentation, then you have this kind of subtle, glitchy electronics uh, that are sort of um, mixed in. hearing in a piece like that 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 comes from like how how does that come from antarctica how is that a a remix of the ice of the landscape well um a dear friend of mine is a composer named steve reich um he's considered one of america's premier kind of minimalist composers 
And when you think about minimalism, the idea is that um, it's expansion and contraction based, you know, when I say like arpeggio or ostinato, in classical music, those are forms that are about patterns as well. So that was a riff on Steve Reich's track, uh, City Life. Um, but I wanted to go to Antarctica and do a reflection of that kind of stuff and was doing riffs and elements about what it would be like to be in a city. So if you go to Antarctica, it's like you've carried the idea of the city in your mind. Um, and I love the idea that it's kind of what um, like artists and writers like John Cage, who's one of my favorite uh, composers, he called this kind of idea of the imaginary landscape. Some of the most renowned composers, like Charles Ives, dealt with landscape. And if you look at the French scene, you, know, you have Debussy with La Mer. But with hip-hop, it's out of the city. you know. So, so I wanted to figure out how would you take someone who's been involved in the urban context and hit the reset button. So I started the project with City Life, um, but done in a way that was my interpretation of it. That's what you were hearing. And then ended up with uh, Portraits of Ice in the middle of this huge ice field. So when people hear a piece like that, what do you hope that they take away from it? I mean, is it enough that they just enjoy the music or do you want them to have that, uh, like you said, that sort of sort of smart, like unabashedly smart uh, context for how it's made and the concept behind it and what the sounds represent? Yeah, I mean, they can just press play and relax. I mean, and just hear some beautiful sounds or get conceptual and really start pulling apart the ideas of the composition, some of the issues that climate change um, is looking at with this idea of pattern disruption. If you're, you know, an Inuit Indian in the Arctic Circle, your patterns are going to be disrupted by the melting of the polar ice caps. If you're a New Yorker, your patterns are going to get disrupted by super mega storms like Sandy because the whole coastline is not going to be flooded. So, yeah, I mean, that's not what you're going to hear when you press play on a song. But I'm hoping that music and art help reframe some of the issues around climate change and still make it... Um, like a lyrical take on things. It's not heavy handed. I'm not like citing and pounding you with statistics and numbers. But if you look at Debussy's La Mer, which is one of the most beautiful compositions of the 20th century, those are songs that endure not because of the actual theme, although that's a part of it. It's because they're beautiful, you know? I, I like this idea of art presenting the, the message about climate change differently from how a scientist or even a journalist would do it. Um, but who are you reaching? Like, what's the what's the target audience? How do you how does it reach them differently? I guess is my question. When you say who am I reaching? It's pretty much anybody who has a cell phone, a mobile media platform, tablet, computer, you name it. But is it the style of music? Is it the kind of art form of using data to make you know music? Is it climate change as a kind of palette? You know, those are all things I'm kind of looking at. When I say palette, I'm looking at like a painter in the 18th century would have had to mix certain colors to come up with a portrait. But an artist in the 21st century is using data. Um, that's my kind of paint, you know. Um, so who is it reaching? It's reaching people who are concerned about information. Uh, it's reaching people who are looking at art and music as not being separate, but in total, you know, dialogue. Whenever scientists and artists get together, each one benefits, and I'm trying to encourage that more. And I think the role of music and art, trying to come up with new ways of using all these tools around us, that... I think will help be a game changer. It's only 2013. We got a whole century ahead of us, you know. That was multimedia remix artist Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky. To find out more about his Antarctic remix project and other work, visit djspooky.com. Wow. 
that's all for this edition of How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show, the show that makes you smarter. This week's show was produced by Susan Moran and was engineered by Ten Burdum. Shelley Schlender is our executive producer this quarter. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from DJ Spooky. Shelley Schlender also helped with headlines. Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Ted Burnham. And I'm Susan Moran. Thank you.